Hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, notes as you were coming in. Normally, um, when we have a Lord's Supper service, I just plan uh, uh, some uh, little devotional that I trust will be meaningful, and I wanted to tie this in with uh, what I uh, had just shared with the, uh, the children And uh, you'll notice, uh, if you have your sermon notes, that very, very uh, first question. I've titled this little em- em- devotional, Embracing uh, the Cross uh, for the Sake of Others. And um, look at that, uh, look at that uh, question there uh, right at the very beginning. If God the Father did not spare His beloved Son from suffering on the cross... To bring salvation to me, why should I be surprised if he calls me to embrace the cross of suffering to bring salvation to others? And of course, we just saw a beautiful illustration of that in the life of Richard Wormbrand and of course, uh, the little boy. You know, when we talk about adversity and suffering in the Christian life, uh, we often emphasize it's, it's benefits to our, to our Christian experience, and, and rightfully so. Uh, that's clearly taught in the Scriptures, that God uses suffering for the good, for the benefit of His child uh, in many different ways uh, to strengthen our faith as we see just how dependent we are upon Him, as we learn uh, in our weakness to depend upon His power. Uh, he uses uh, suffering uh, to burn the very image and character of Christ uh, in us so that we grow to be more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He uses suffering and adversity to prune us because uh, we have a tendency to overextend our lives, and He often will prune us, cut us back, not because He hates us, but He wants us to be more effective for Him and to bear even more fruit for Him. And yes, He uses suffering and adversity at times, to uh, discipline us when that is needed. But this right here is probably the most neglected area of teaching uh, when it comes to suffering and adversity. That God, yes, He uses suffering in the life of His believer to provide us an opportunity to make Him known to a lost world. You know, I've, I've taught on this on uh, many occasions. And uh, to be very honest, I've taught on this often in pregnancy center uh, conferences where we've recent, in uh, recent years put the focus on uh, the increased hostility, how to respond to persecution and adversity. And sometimes I'll get some kickback and, uh, and almost the objection, now wait a minute, you're saying this God that loves me, he's going to allow me to be hurt, uh, to be wounded uh, for another? And my response is basically be just to look at him and say, well, by the way, who's your Lord and Savior? Uh, what did your master do? And uh, that's the point of the question. If, if God the Father did not spare His beloved Son uh, the suffering on the cross uh, to bring salvation to me, why, why would I be surprised that God, yes, would allow Andy Merritt to suffer, to know pain, uh, to experience tragedy and adversity to provide a platform for me uh, to reach others. And in this brief devotional, I've just mentioned three ways that that God will do this. 
in my life and in your life. And so when it comes, we should not be surprised. And, and here's the reason I teach on this. If we don't understand this truth, if we don't have this biblical foundation in theology related to uh, suffering and adversity and persecution, uh, we will be surprised when it comes. And we will be tempted to think, God has failed me. God let me down. You know, He didn't meet my expectations. You know, when I, when I committed to be a believer, I wasn't signing up for this. <laughs> and, and, and if we're not careful, when we think He's failed us, we'll plunge deep into disappointment, disappointment with God, that can even morph into tremendous anger and bitterness towards life and life circumstances. You know, classic biblical example is Naomi in the first chapter of Ruth. You know, she's lost her husband, she's lost both of her sons, uh, and she's returning to her hometown of Bethlehem after being away for many years as a result of uh, famine. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, the folks in the city, as she begins to come in with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, they recognize this is Naomi that they have not seen for years. And the whole town begins to come back, to, to, to greet her, to welcome her. And do you remember what her response was? She says, I'm, I'm talking about in anger, in bitterness. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. And you know, you know what Naomi means in the Hebrew? Pleasant one. She says, you don't call me pleasant one anymore. You call me Mara. And you know what Mara means in the Hebrew? It means bitter. She says, so you don't call me pleasant one anymore. You call me bitter. And then she gives the reason. She says, because Almighty God has dealt bitterly with me. See, there is a woman who at that point in her walk with God, she believed that God had failed her, that God had let her down, and she had plunged into this morning. She did not grasp this truth at this point, that God uses adversity, He uses suffering, yes, to build our faith, yes, to shape our character, but also to provide a backdrop to display the brilliance of Jesus uh, to others, and especially to a lost world. And so look very, very quickly at three ways God does this. First, God will allow His child to suffer wrong, to suffer wrong, to extend His forgiveness to others. God will allow His child to suffer wrong to extend His forgiveness to others. I mean, you couldn't have a better illustration of that than the one I just shared with the boys and girls about the little boy that gave that uh, police chief the potted plant that he had intended to give to his mother uh, because his parents had taught him that believers are to love their enemies. Uh, and God often will orchestrate our lives where, yes, Somebody wounds me. Somebody hurts me. And God has orchestrated that to give me the opportunity not only to learn to love as Christ loved, not only to learn to forgive as Christ forgave, but then to extend that forgiveness. That others would be touched, see His forgiveness through me, be drawn to Christ like that police chief was drawn to Christ by the little, by the little boy. And where it becomes even an encouragement to believers as they see this remarkable testimony of God's grace in the midst of our weakness and adversity. Now, very, very quickly, don't have time to linger here, but anytime I allude to forgiveness, I, I think it's very, very important uh, just to briefly share 
what biblical forgiveness actually means when you get it down to the rubber meets the road and, and look at those th- next three bullet points. First, forgiveness is refusing to pay back the wrongdoer for wounding me. That's the first aspect of, uh, of forgiveness. It's not, it's not all that there is to forgiveness, but it has to begin there uh, where I refuse. I make a deliberate, intentional choice, although everything in my emotions may be telling me to hit this person or strangle this person or take them out. I make a deliberate, intentional choice. Not my will, thine be done. And God, yes, I relinquish my desire to pay back this person for wounding me, for hurting me. Look at Romans 12 there. Those verses, 17 through 21, in your sermon notes. Never pay back evil with more evil. You might want to circle that word, never. Never. In other words, there's no exception to this. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Circle the word never again. Twice he repeats this to drive it home. Never pay back evil. And then here, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. In other words, there will be a payday someday. God is just. And God one day will right every wrong. You can be guaranteed of that even those in your life. But your calling is to leave that to God and for you not to choose to pay back the one who offended you, the wounded you, but instead to demonstrate the love of Jesus to put Christ on display. Because he goes on and he says, instead, here's what you're to do instead. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. Just like the little boy gave his potted plant to the police chief to give to his wife or mother. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Look at the next bullet point. Forgiveness is also absorbing the debt of the person who wronged me. In other words, when somebody wrongs you, we inevitably say what? Now they owe me. You know, maybe they owe you money. Or maybe they've slandered you and they, and they owe you uh, come back on that to protect your, whatever it might be. We could just go on and on. But when somebody wounds you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody wrongs you, there's always this thought that, okay, now they, they owe me. They, they've taken something from me that was mine, that was, that was precious. But in forgiveness, it absorbs the debt of the person who wronged me. It says, love keeps no record of being wronged. Again, it's not that we're going to be able to forget. It's a deliberate, intentional choice that I make. You've heard me say uh, from this pulpit on other occasions uh, in in maybe a little different words. The essence of forgiveness is a promise that I make to you. If you wound me, if you hurt me, if you wrong me, if I say I forgive you, I am promising you that I will never throw that back up into your face with a motive to put a wall between us, that I'm committed to building a bridge between us. I'm committed to reconciling things uh, between, between us. So it's in that sense that love keeps no records of uh, being wrong. 
Again, a deliberate, intentional choice. And then look at the third bullet point. Forgiveness is receiving the offense, what was done to me, as God's call to bless my offender. Forgiveness is receiving the offense as God's call to bless my offender. Look at you can't be much clearer than this. 1 Peter 3, 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will bless you for it. Amen? So, that's one of the ways God will use suffering uh, to provide us an opportunity uh, to make Him known to others. He will often allow us to suffer wrong not only to learn to love as Christ loved, to learn to forgive as Christ forgave, but then to extend that forgiveness that others might be impacted and others would come to know Christ. Look at the second thing that God will often do. God will allow His child to suffer hurt to provide His comfort to others. God will allow His child to suffer hurt to provide His comfort to others. You know, we live in a fallen world. And this world is twisted. It is not right. And, and God's a sovereign God. And in His sovereignty, He made the determination that He would not make His child immune from the consequences of living in a fallen world. So yes, believers get hurt. Believers suffer sickness. Believers suffer financial crisis. Believers suffer divorce. Believers suffer rape, abuse, persecution. We could go on and on. Anything that you see in this world of a horrific nature throughout your believers have encountered, have faced. And you say, why, why when, when God is a God of love and He's all-powerful? And that, well, I mean, we know, I mean, let's be very honest about the dilemma. We, we know that God doesn't cause everything that happens. That's, 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 that's a distortion of God's sovereignty. God is good. He can't even, the Bible says, He can't even tempt a person towards evil. Not to mention create it or call someone to do an evil, an evil act. But here's our dilemma. He's all-powerful, and He could have pre- prevented it. He could arrange circumstances to prevent it from happening. And that's our dilemma, and we say, why? Why, God? And this is one of the reasons. He will often, you know, the, the Bible says He causes the rain to fall on what? The righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, we, we all suffer the consequences of living in a fallen world. And He allows believers to experience those same things so that we can show we're different. So that we can demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ working in the midst of our hearts and lives. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That teaches this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at verses 3 through 6 first. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that, here there's purpose, reason, so that we may be able to comfort those 
who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And look at verse 6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. You hear, you hear what Paul is saying? God will allow a believer to go through dark waters of adversity so that we can experience His grace, so that we can learn to lean on Him, develop an intimacy with Him in that that we never knew prior to the affliction. But He's not just doing that because He loves Andy Merritt. He does that because He loves the lost world. And He wants to provide a platform for me to demonstrate His grace, to demonstrate His love. And, when we, and you have to admit, when we go through difficult what's the greatest example in this church family? I've used it so many times, Jeremy Williams. People look at Jeremy Williams and they say, how? I'd want to shoot my brains out. And y'all know how God has used Jeremy in the ALS and his condition. How hundreds have been brought to Christ through this man, especially young high school athletes. Think about how you've been encouraged by Jeremy. How so many other believers have been encouraged by Jeremy. So one of the reasons God permitted that, allowed that, is so that Jeremy and his family would know God's grace in order to impart God's grace to others. I mean, it's a poor comforter that's never needed comfort. I have to be in that situation to need it, to draw on God, and then God gives it to me to give it to others, to share my testimony, to come along their side, to have an opportunity to teach them what God taught me in that time of darkness and adversity, and to encourage them in it. And then Paul even gives a great example of this. Uh, in the, in, uh, look at verse 8. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. This is the Apostle Paul, champion of the faith, filled with the Holy Spirit in the middle of God's will. He says that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. So here's Paul. He says, God allowed me to come to a, an affliction in Asia. He doesn't tell us what it was. He says, but I was burdened excessively. I couldn't. It was beyond my ability to cope with this. Matter of fact, I thought it was over. I despaired of life. I had given up hope. Sentence of death is written on me. And then he gives the reason God allowed him to go through that. He says, notice, indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves, verse 9, in order that there's cause, there's purpose, that we would not trust in ourselves but in a God who raises the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, God put me through this horrific situation, and in it, he kicked all the crutches out from underneath me, where I, had, I got so low, I had no place to look but up. And as I looked up, I found God as I had never known him. I discovered a God who raises the dead. And if God can raise the dead, what can't God do? And that affliction was transformed then into an open door of ministry for Paul. So hear me now. If you're a believer, every hurt you experience, 
could be the loss of a loved one like the Randalls have experienced recently. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a relational crisis where your mate has turned on you and rejected you, has become unfair. It, it could, it, it, we could just go on. It could, be, it could be sickness. It could be illness. It could be praying for the persecutor. It could be persecution. It could be someone like, many of y'all know the story, beautiful testimony of Melanie who was raped and how God turned that for her good in his greater, greater glory. I mean, I, I, could just go, I could just go on and on. That's the kind of God that we serve. And he allows us to go through that so that we'll know his comfort and grace in order to minister that comfort and grace to others. Amen? Uh, And then look at the third and last reason as we close. God will allow his child to suffer adversity to display his life to others. God will allow his child to suffer adversity to display his life to others. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And what an incredible passage that indicates this. I have so very, very little time, so let me just hit the, hit the highlights. will not be difficult, and, and this speaks, and it's powerful. Uh, verse 6, Paul says, For God, who said light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about that time when God's light penetrated the darkness of your heart and, and, and opened your eyes to see the infinite beauty, majesty, and glory of Jesus. And he says, when that happened, my life became filled with the light and glory of Jesus. My heart became his home. But verse 7, but we have this treasure. He's talking about that treasure of Jesus. He's talking about that light that we received, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And that word earthen vessels means frail clay pot. He's talking about these bodies of ours. And he's saying, God has put that infinite treasure of Jesus, the beauty of his glory and light and majesty in these frail clay pots that so easily become cracked, so easily become broken. I mean, physically we know pain, emotionally we know uh, stress, uh, mentally we know anguish. I mean, we go on and on. We are a bunch of weak folks, and we have this treasure in these frail clay pots. Why? He says that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. God doesn't want to draw attention to us. He wants to draw attention to himself. We are his instruments to put him on display. How does he do that? Look at verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. We're afflicted is thalipsis. It means to be confined, almost squeezed into a narrow place. Like, like it, it's so overbearing, you're, you're just being squeezed and crushed by the pressure. I mean, the, the best English word we have for this is stress. And Paul is saying, this is the Apostle Paul writing this. This champion of faith in the middle of God's will, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, there's not a day that goes by. I don't get stressed out. I don't know intense pressure to the point of agonizing pain. And it hurts. Because I have this treasure in a frail clay pot. I'm just humanity. I'm not deity. I'm humanity. 
But he says, what? Not crushed. I'm perplexed. That means without a way. He says, I hit situations, I hit circumstances, I don't have a clue what to do. I feel totally inadequate. I feel totally impotent, powerless. I don't know whether I should retreat, rush like a bull blindly. I have no clue. But he says, although that's true, not despairing. Not where I would give up hope, jump ship. And yes, I'm persecuted. People are always trying to attack me, stop me, beat me, hurt me. And the very people I'm trying to love. But I'm not forsaken because why? God said he'd never leave me nor forsake me. And then he says, he says, struck down but not destroyed. That, that language is taken from almost like an athletic contest, boxing or wrestling. And what Paul is literally saying is, when I go through life and I encounter life's afflictions and perplexities and persecutions, he's saying, I'll tell you something. I need to be very honest and transparent. Although I'm this great champion for Christ, every day I get knocked on my butt. That's exactly what he's saying. I get knocked down. But when he says, but not destroyed, the idea is, yes, I get knocked down, but I'm never knocked out of the contest because God is there to pick me up. And again, hear me now. Here's the point. Why does God work that way? Why does God allow that? To break us. Why does he want to break me? To release the light of Christ. To release this treasure of Christ into a lost world where Jesus will be magnified, exhausted, lifted up, adored, loved as people see his life manifested and exalted in and through uh, my life. And this is exactly what he says in verses uh, 10 11 and 12. He says, always, always, always caring about in the body, this frail clay pot, the dying of Jesus. Why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we are who live, that's you and me, are constantly being delivered over to death. That's affliction. Those uh, again, the affliction, the perplexity, the persecutions, getting knocked on your butt. He says, we're constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now, as we close, where does this lead you? I think to a very... Uh, uh, Basic point of surrender, it's where you say, God, um, I'm going to give you the freedom to arrange the all things of my life in the way that you deem best to put yourself on display before a lost world. You say, well, does God need my permission? The only way I'll respond to that is, God wants us to cooperate with Him. He wants us to worship Him. And out of a motive of love and worship in light of what we just celebrated, yes, He would prefer not to be met with resistance continually from Andy Merritt and me fighting what He's attempting to do in and through me. 
So yes, he wants to bring me to that place where I said, I'm giving you now the freedom. I really don't, I don't, really don't need to look to you for outcomes. Because when you think about it, that can get very selfish. And when you don't get the outcome that you want, you get upset with God. So do you, do you really believe he loves you? Well, if you really believe he loves you, then you can be confident that he knows what's best for you. He knows better than you. So you don't need to focus on outcomes. You don't need to focus on results. You just focus on him. Knowing him. Exalting him. Magnifying him. Believing that he's big enough to take care of the outcomes and the results. And that it will all work eventually for your good, the good of his people, and his greater glory. Amen? Father, thank you uh, for this devotional today. And um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, move in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. There may be many in this congregation that have never said those words before you in the sincerity of their heart. And Lord, we know that one of the reasons we are reluctant to say, yes, we give you that freedom is we're afraid to do so. But Lord, help us see that perfect love casts out fear. And the one thing we don't have to doubt is your love for us. You demonstrated that on Calvary's cross. And I can even know as I give you the freedom to arrange the all things of my life, the one who arranges those all things is Jesus. And he does it with his nail-pierced hands. And so although I may be in affliction, perplexed, Persecuted, struggling to understand the rhyme and reason behind it all. Yes, when I can't trace your hand, I can trust your heart. So, Lord, bring us as your followers to that place where, yes, we would give you the freedom to arrange the all things of our life in the way that you deem best. And let me just allow a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity as a believer, as a follower of Christ, to pray that prayer, to give him the freedom to arrange the all things of your life in the way that he deems best, knowing that the one who loves you most knows what is best for you, and that in the end, it will work for your good, your spiritual benefit, and the greater glory of God. Father, I think of Paul's words even in, uh, with, for those who just made that surrender. Um, Lord, we can't keep that. We can only keep it by your grace. But Paul did say, I'm confident that he's able to keep that and complete that 
which I've entrusted to him. And uh, so, Lord, thank you that we are your masterpiece, that we are a work in progress, and that you will not let us go. And so, Lord, uh, open our eyes to see your glory. Open our eyes to see your love, a love that would cast out our fear to give you the freedom to arrange the all things of our life in the way that you deem best. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.